0: We all have different personalities. True. You know that to be true. My children tell me that they knew they were really in trouble when I started to speak softly and slowly. I guess in those times, I wanted to weigh my words carefully, and I wanted to control my emotions. So when I said, Gregory Daniel, they knew something was up. And I want to control my emotions and measure my words because words matter. They can be daggers or they can be comfort. They can bring relief or they can bring condemnation. Emotions matter too. We evaluate how seriously a person is invested in their words by the emotion behind them. I'm not sure if you noticed last Sunday, but by the time I got to the end of the service, I was speaking slowly and more softly. This wasn't because I was angry. This was because I was deadly serious. The subject matter, an appeal to make certain that you have all accepted Jesus Christ as savior is the most serious matter in the world. Eternity hangs in the balance based on the decisions you make, both the initial decision and the decisions that follow that initial decision. In the Gospel according to Luke, Jesus tells a story about a rich man and a beggar. Jesus gives the beggar the name Lazarus, but he does not give the rich man a name. We should notice that. Jesus knows the name of the beggar, but apparently not the rich man. Before we begin reading this story, which is in Luke 16, beginning in the 19th verse, before we read it, you should understand that this isn't a story that Jesus is using to tell us about the nature of heaven. This is a parable. It's a once upon a time story that speaks to us about the decisions of the rich man, the theology of folks who rely on their wealth or status, and about the hardness of heart of many people. This is Luke 16, beginning in verse 19. This is the gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I invite you to stand for the reading. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, the rich man, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets let them listen to them no father Abraham he said but if someone from the dead goes to them they will repent he said to him if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead this is the word of the Lord you may be seated In our story, the rich man is content to indulge himself with the fruit of his labor. We do not know very much about the rich man, except that in spite of proximity to Lazarus, he does nothing to assist this poor man. Jesus, in this story, and in the verses before it, has been addressing the Pharisees, who we are told were lovers of money, in verse 14. He has been giving general advice to those who have riches. He told the story of the shrewd manager, demonstrating that the children of the dark are craftier than the children of the light. He's not encouraging us to be crafty. He's revealing the tricks of those who live in darkness, in part so that we can know how to avoid them, but there's more than that under these verses. He tells the Pharisees, Well, to use their dishonest wealth to make friends so that when their money is gone, they will have friends to lean on. This is sort of practical advice. He's not saying we should pursue money dishonestly. He's saying that underneath all of this is the lesson. Dishonest wealth isn't going to last. And here's the principle that Jesus is revealing Use wealth to gain a future, not to lose a future. I'm convinced we think too often in the short term, thinking of things that will make us comfortable or feel more secure in the days we still have on earth. But we need to think in longer terms. We need to stretch our vision all the way to heaven. But more is happening in these stories than just revealing the truism that we should use our resources to create a future rather than using our resources in ways that will cause us to lose a future. The Pharisees believed, and it's possible to grab this kind of thinking out of the Old Testament, that wealth was a sign of God's favor. The very fact that a person was wealthy proved that God was blessing them since so many of the Psalms and the passages from Deuteronomy say things like the righteous will prosper and the wicked will perish. Unfortunately, as is often the case, the Pharisees are only reading the parts of Scripture that suit them. Reading and living by Only those portions of scripture that support our opinions is epidemic right now. The misuse of the Bible to justify what I want is everywhere around us. And this is exactly what the Pharisees are doing in this day. They overlook the parts of the Bible that say, the harvest must be shared with the poor. In Leviticus 19 or in Deuteronomy 15 17 if anyone is poor among your fellow Israelites in any of the towns of the land the Lord God is giving you do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward them rather be open-handed and freely lend them whatever they need give generously to them and do so without a grudging heart then because of this The Lord will bless you in all your work and everything you put your hand to do. There will always be poor people in the land, therefore I command you to be open, open open-handed towards your fellow Israelites who are poor and needy in your land. The Pharisees ignored the words of Isaiah in chapter fifty-eight, six. Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen to loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe them and not turn away from your own flesh and blood? Unfortunately, it would be nice if you could make the case that every righteous person will become wealthy but the passage clearly teaches us the poor will always be with us. And so it's clear that wealth in itself is not a sign of the blessing or favor of God. Plenty of folks have become wealthy through dishonest and treacherous means, and their wealth is not a sign of the blessing or favor of God. The Pharisees' misreading of Scripture is central to what Jesus is teaching in the Gospel of Luke here. And I guess he's teaching it through them as well. He's demonstrating that the life of the kingdom of God as described in scripture is caring for others and preparing for the future, the distant future. This is why right in the middle of these stories that Jesus is telling to these rich folks, you have verse 17. I mean, it seems like an odd insertion here into the middle of these stories unless you understand what Jesus is doing. What does verse 17? Not not one stroke of the pen will fall away from the word of God. What's he meaning by that? He's saying you just can't ignore the parts you don't like because all of this together is the word of God. You have to read the promise of God's provision along with the promise of God's requirement for compassion, that those things must go together. If we're simply holding on the promises of God for provision, that's a self-interested exercise if I'm not also holding on to the command to care for others. They go together. And so we have this rich man who likely thinks that his wealth is God's sign of blessing and therefore a sign of God's approval, just like these Pharisees who are being addressed at the moment, and surprise, surprise, he dies and doesn't end up in heaven. And we have Lazarus, who according to the Pharisees is obviously suffering God's punishment, and he dies and winds up in Abraham's bosom. And there is confusion. And the confusion is based on this great gospel reversal. Those who assumed they were righteous end up being judged harshly, and those whose society judged harshly end up in glory. But there's a discussion, thankfully, in this story that follows the reversal and reveals for us the true nature of things. And we have to hear these words. Finally awake, finally understanding, the rich man pleads for his brothers. Don't let those I love make the same mistake I made. The answer to his appeal is chilling, I think. Everything anyone needs to understand is already revealed in the law and the prophets. It's all there. All your brothers need is plainly right before them. I read under that these thoughts. Many people are deceived because they want to be deceived, they want to believe that their security can be guaranteed by their resources. They do not want to help others. They are self-centered. Their opinions are fixed. They cannot learn from the law and the prophets, which should be enough. In fact, the story goes on, they are so hard-hearted, even if someone were to return from the dead, even if someone was raised from the dead, sent back to them, they could not find a way to believe. You see what Luke is doing right here, can't you? The rich man asked that Lazarus be sent back to his family. Tell those brothers of mine that their actions are leading them to Hades. But Luke hints that even a resurrection won't make a difference to these hard-hearted Pharisees because they just refuse to hear. Their opinions are so fixed they cannot learn. They cannot Understand. Because the only chance the relatives, our relatives, have is the message of Jesus. Unless we believe the good news of Jesus. That good news that says, even though we all sin, our sins can be forgiven. The good news that says the gift of God, the free gift of God is eternal life. The good news that offers a new way of living, a life that includes compassion for others. Unless we believe this good news and embrace it, we will be on the wrong side of this great reversal. And instead of receiving the gift of God, which is eternal life, we will inherit eternal death. That's the truth of the gospel. It's the content of our faith that we stare at at every funeral service we attend. The only confidence we have on dark days like those is that by faith in Jesus Christ, God's promises will be proved true, and as we embrace life in the kingdom of God, we will be raised by him, by his power, by the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. That is our only hope. It's all we've got. It's everything, but it's all we have. Our culture loves euphemisms. We find nice way to say things so that we can avoid staring the truth in the face. He made poor choices. Yes, he robbed a bank. He has a condition. Yes, he continues to abuse substances. He has a faulty sense of honesty. He's a liar. There are so many polite ways of saying things to avoid hurting people's feelings or shading the truth. But while euphemisms may help us through tough times, like saying a person passed away rather than saying they died, euphemisms don't do much to reveal the truth to us. Have you ever noticed how hard funeral directors work to keep the truth of what is happening right in front of us from actually being seen? When the casket is closed, most times the family is asked to leave the room first, so no one has to experience the moment of separation from the body. If the casket must be closed in public, the directors attempt to shield the process visually from the family. Heavy makeup is always used to keep us from seeing the actual condition of a deteriorating body. At the gravesite, as much as possible, the dirt is all covered up, so no one has to face the stark reality that this body will be underground in a few short minutes. These days, most folks leave the graveyard before the casket is even lowered. I am not saying that those practices are inherently wrong. I'm just saying that there is a conspiracy to keep us from seeing the truth of what is happening to spare our feelings. Have you ever paid attention to the kind of things that people say to each other at funerals, things we, we don't believe or Things we just make up to make other people feel better. Oh, so-and-so is a little angel in heaven right now. Friends, humans don't become angels. Never have, never will. We're humans created in the image of God. We will always be human. We have an eternal destiny, and our preferred destiny is in fellowship in heaven with our Father that's who we are if we say we become angels what does that do to the incarnation jesus specifically came and took on our humanity he did not take on angelhood he took on our humanity so he could be like one of us because this is who we were created to be we can't use euphemisms to skirt around that stuff we're humans with an eternal destiny well she's up there with grandma right now well i hope that she is but there is only one way we can be sure of that, and that's if grandma and G committed their lives to Christ and have received the gift that only God can give, the gift of eternal life. Amen. Well, he's in a better place. Well, again, I hope that he is. But the content of our faith is that resurrection is for members of the kingdom of God universalists believe that everyone will be saved but i've got to tell you friends you can't find that in scripture if the bible is our authority membership in the kingdom of god is the most significant thing there is because resurrection is for the children of god and heaven is for them that's who we are That's what we believe. We believe there will be a judgment. We believe that our only defense on the day of judgment will be an appeal to the mercy of God based on the blood of Jesus freely sacrificed for us. That's who we are. We believe that the choice to follow Jesus will have to have been made while we were still living here on the earth. And that we will have to follow that choice with obedience to the call of Christ. And if we have any hope of heaven at all, if we have any hope of seeing our loved ones again, if we have any possibility of enjoying heaven with the angels, it will be because we choose Christ now and live for him now while we have the opportunity to do so. That's it. That's who we are. That is our only confidence it is your relatives only confidence it is your family's, family members only confidence it is your neighbors only confidence we spent time last Sunday talking about approaches to how you can share this good news I put additional copies of the approaches I articulated last Sunday in the lobby again for today I put another one out there this is called Step Up to Life. Little booklet like this. They're in the lobby. And this author makes the point that everybody on the planet is either moving closer to Jesus or further away from Jesus. That our decisions hinge point is what we think of Jesus. And it's a great little booklet for helping folks consider how do you move closer to Jesus until you arrive at the place of saving faith. They're out there as well. I would encourage you in the strongest possible terms. Don't leave the sanctuary without knowing that you have invited Christ to live in your life, to send the Spirit with transforming grace, forgiving grace, resolve to follow his leadership. Nothing is more important than that. And you can't share the story, which is what I'm asking you to do. Share the story until you've received it yourself. We're gonna sing the same song we sang last Sunday, I've Decided to Follow Jesus. And while we sing this song, if the Holy Spirit has been whispering in your ear that you need to make this commitment, that you need to ask forgiveness for your sins. You need to invite him into your life to, to change you and give you the gift of eternal life. I'd invite you to come forward and kneel at this altar and give me the opportunity of praying with you this morning. If you make this decision and aren't quite ready to kneel at this altar while you do it, I invite you to call me and talk to me this week so that we can get together and walk through that process. It's the most important decision you'll ever make. Don't procrastinate a moment. It's my desire every Sunday at this point to bless you, that the comfort of God would be yours, that the peace of Christ would be yours, that you would know the joy of serving Jesus each day That's always my desire for you. This benediction will not be like this. For those who have not yet known Christ the Savior, may the hound of heaven pursue you until you are so uncomfortable that you have no choice but to run to the Father whose chiefest desire for you is for your good, for your eternal benefit, and for your joy. I pray this to the glory of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.